Let's take our Bibles, turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. When I was a boy, 14 years old, we got to go on a big family trip and uh, we got to visit places in Europe. One of the places we went to was uh, Vatican, the Vatican in Rome. And as we went through there, we visited the Sistine Chapel. Anybody ever heard of the Sistine Chapel? And the ceiling of this chapel was painted by Michelangelo in, in and around 1500. And uh, so I was doing a little bit of research on him. They say he was around 37 years old when he finished painting the chapel. And uh, just it's still today one of the most beautiful pieces of art in all the world that you can visit and that you can see. And uh, I love beautiful pictures. I love beautiful art like that. But I think sometimes when we view beautiful art, we wonder what its place is in the real world. And my concern is that sometimes we view the Word of God like beautiful art. We love the promises of God. We love the beautiful Word of God. We love the language and all that God teaches us in His Word. But if we fail to take that truth and we, and we fail to apply it to our real lives, then the beauty that is the Word of God doesn't do us a whole lot of good if it doesn't change how we live day by day. And uh, that the beauty that's on the Sistine Chapel, you can look it up online and see it, but you can't take it with you. It stays there, and you can go view it, you can enjoy it, but uh, if you don't uh, let it change your life at all, then it is just that, art on the wall. And Scripture is so much more, or should be so much more to us than just art on the wall. It is truth for real life. And the book of James, as we're going to be studying through over the next number of weeks together, is a book that gives us truth applied to real life. Probably one of the most well-known verses in all of James is the verse that faith without works is dead. And it's interesting when you do some reading about others who have studied the book of James. You know, Martin Luther didn't really like the book of James. In fact, he questioned whether it should be part of the Bible or not altogether. And uh, because of some of those statements about faith and works, and obviously we know he was coming from a Catholic background where he had been taught in his Catholic upbringing that it was works that gained him salvation. And so he learned that justification was by faith. And so that idea of trying to put those two ideas together was a struggle for him. And I think not to beat up on, on Martin Luther at all, the reality is I think it's a struggle even for many of us today to be able to put faith and works together and see how those two things can coexist. And if our walk with the Lord is something that all we talk about is our faith, our faith, our faith, but our faith doesn't transform the way that we live, the works that we do, then the book of James teaches us then that faith is really not real faith. Faith without works is dead. And so James works around a number of different themes, really kind of everyday living kind of stuff. The one we get to start with tonight, this evening, is in James chapter 1 as he talks about dealing with trials, which definitely fits with where we were this morning. But uh, as we work through this book, we're going to see a lot of different themes that he deals with. Some I know are familiar to you, but I think they are helpful for us as we consider these tests of our faith. 
I want to take a few moments, if you'll follow along, and read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And then I have a, a few points I want to make from this passage tonight. And then, Lord willing, at the end, we're going to take some time. There's a few discussion questions split up in three, four, five, I don't know, four or five people to a group. Ladies and men kind of divide up. And we're going to ask some questions of each other and uh, share some things about this lesson with each other and then spend a little bit of time in prayer before we're done this evening. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the, and, uh, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. There's one of those promises we just heard a moment ago. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Some commentators have called the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament, because in it we have so much pithy truth that is so applicable to where we live. Let's ask God's blessing as we study his word together. Father, we love you and we thank you for the truth that your word gives us to live each day. May this be real world theology, not that truthfully that there's any other kind. All truth that you've given us in your word is applicable. In fact, in, in, you wrote to Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And Lord, help us not to ever approach the pages of Scripture as something that's just beautiful or interesting from a distance, but help us to be willing to get up close and personal with it and to, through your Spirit's power, allow the Word to change us from inside out. May we grow in our walk with you as we hear your voice tonight. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, our first section that we're going to cover tonight is this idea of enduring trials with joy. James, as he writes this letter, James was most likely the man who was uh, one of the leaders, if not the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And we can see that he's writing here primarily to believers. He begins right there in verse 2. He says, my brethren. And he's writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So he's writing primarily to a 
Christian Jewish audience of people who were scattered around the world. If you remember, some of you were with us during our study in the book of Acts here in the church, and you know that the, that the church got its start there in Jerusalem. They are on Pentecost, and there were 3,000 people who came to Christ that day. And the church began to grow and flourish in Jerusalem. But it wasn't long before God, we know where testing comes from after this morning, God allowed trials and tribulations to come into the church there at Jerusalem, and God used those trials and tribulations to scatter the church, to scatter the people, and He did that for a reason. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8 before He ascended up to heaven? He said, Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So His plan was for the gospel to go to the whole world. And God loves people all around this world, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And so James now is writing this letter to encourage these saints who are scattered abroad. Can you imagine them? Some of them probably living in places where they felt like they needed to be in hiding. They thought perhaps there were others who were trying to persecute them, and that was true in some cases. There were some who had moved to places where they had to find new jobs, where they had to find new places to live, new friends, new groups. And it's interesting that as they scattered abroad, as they moved, God used this to see the church grow and to multiply. Isn't it amazing when Christians go out and do what they're supposed to do, God's church grows? That's pretty fantastic that the Lord has a plan for growing and spreading His church. I often think about that in my own life, and I hope you think about that in yours as well, that if God were to take you and put you somewhere in the world where you didn't know anybody at all, if you took time and you learned the language and you got to know the people there, could you also be able to shine the light of Christ in that location and be able to lead people to Christ? And could there in time be other believers who would follow Christ? I believe that you could. I believe that we have everything that we need with the Spirit of God and the Word of God to be able to see that kind of work accomplished. So this is James's audience, these saints, these 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. And he jumps right in on dealing with trials and struggles. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. I think it's interesting that the first thing that he deals with is our attitude in testing. Our attitude in testing. You know, your attitude is so important, isn't it? Uh, your attitude really makes all the difference in any given situation. You can have a good day or a bad day, but if you have the right attitude in the situation, it makes all the difference. And the first thing that James deals with about trials is not how to get out of the trial. He doesn't deal with the three top ways to endure in a trial. He just starts right in on, here's what your attitude ought to be when you're going through a trial. I like that, don't you? Because our attitude is probably, well, let me say a couple things about our attitude. First of all, it is one thing that we actually can control. You can choose what your attitude's going to be. You can't choose all the time what your test is. You can't choose how long that test will last. But you can choose how you will respond in that test, what your attitude will be like. 
And that's the first thing he deals with is their attitude in testing. Our attitude in testing, if you're writing in your notes there, should be joy. Should be joy. Joy doesn't mean that there's excitement over every little thing that takes place or that you're jumping off the floor or you're bouncing off the walls with excitement over the difficulty that you're facing. Rather, it is a confident assurance, a hope in the Lord that brings joy because you know that at the end of all this, God is a plan and He's doing His work. There's joy, as the song says, in serving Jesus. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. We sing the song, count your blessings, name them one by one. Here he says you ought to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And he uses the word temptations here in, in the King James Version. That word is used several different times, but it has a slightly different nuance of meaning from place to place. Here he's talking about the testings or the trials that we face in our life. Later on, we'll see this in a coming week. He says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God because God doesn't tempt any man. So he said, tempting and temptations. So there is a difference in this. This is not Satan's temptation that he's bringing in your life. These are just the trials and difficulties that God allows in our life. When God moves things around, when God changes our circumstances, when all of a sudden the status quo is turned upside down, that's when we tend to find ourselves struggling to find joy. We generally are pretty good about figuring out how to exist in our situation until it changes again. And then it's all new all over again. If you've moved to a new place, there's a lot of change that goes on. If you've changed jobs. We all saw this happen back in 2020 when COVID came across. People were trying to figure out how am I going to live it with this situation? What am I going to do in response to the changing circumstances around me? And what did we see in our world? An absolute horrible decline in the people's mental health, right? Because people were discouraged. They were afraid. They didn't know what to do. The prevailing attitude was not one of joy, was it? And that sadly was true even for Christians. The prevailing attitude was not one of joy. And yet, even as we get through difficult circumstances, we ought to be able to look back and say, you know, maybe I should have chosen to have an attitude of joy in that situation. This was definitely not what I would have chosen to do. But God knew what he was doing, didn't he? And God still knows what he is doing. But when our situation changes, when things turn to what we define as the worst, we struggle to find joy. He's dealing here with our attitude. This morning I talked about three different areas that we find testing in many times. Testing of our affections. Who or what do we love? And when those things change and when those things, there's challenges in those areas, God tests our affections and we can still choose joy. Here's one of the reasons you can choose joy even when your human relationships change. It's because there is no friend closer 
than the friend that is Christ Jesus. There is no one who cares for you more than your heavenly Father. He truly is the one, and I think somebody shared this promise earlier, that will never leave you or forsake you. When the testing concerns your body, oh, it can be so painful to go through health problems and physical difficulties, and yet if my body belongs to God, right? What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. If your body is the Lord's and you know that he's the great physician, then he can heal you in this life or the next life. But God's got it. He's, okay. he's got it all together. So when the testing comes in our bodies, we can still choose joy. When the testing comes in our position or plans, it brings us back to a position of having to ask, who is really in charge of my plans? Is it me? Are they mine or are they his? Our attitude in testing should be joy. I don't want to spend the whole time on verse 2, so let's move along here. Because I want you to see next, he's going to give us some of the advantages of testing. We see the advantage of testing in a general sense, and we'll get more specific, is that it develops endurance. It develops endurance. Look at verse 3. He's really giving us the reason why we can be joyful, right? Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Why? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. I started saying this a few years ago as I was, one of the times I was studying through the book of James. Patience, I'm not sure if patience is a gift. I think it's something that you have to earn, right? And he says right here, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Some people say, well, they have the gift of patience. It's probably because they earned it. They earned it. They have had their faith tried in great ways. And because of that, as they have continued to follow the Lord or continue to find peace in that circumstance, they have earned that patience, which is the idea of endurance, the ability to persevere even when things are difficult. So what is the advantage of testing? It is that testing develops endurance. And then he goes a little bit further on there. Look at verse 4. The trying of your faith worketh patience, verse 4, but let patience have her perfect work. Or you'd say this, her perfecting work, her completing work, the work that patience does in you to bring you about to maturity. That's a word I'd like us to think about there. It brings us to spiritual maturity. He says, that ye may be perfect, mature, entire, complete, wanting nothing. I think I said it this morning, a faith that can't be tested, can't be trusted, right? And so here he's saying, our attitude in trials is joy, and the reason I can have joy is because in that trial, God's doing his work in me to develop endurance. And as endurance continues to work and be developed in my life, it brings me to a place of spiritual maturity and completion. 
There are so many places in other epistles. Uh, I think of in Ephesians, Paul writes about this. Philippians, Paul writes about this. In, in, in the church to Corinth, he writes about their spiritual growth and transformation. Paul, in his letters to Timothy and Titus, he talked about spiritual growth and transformation. You find this theme repeated over and over and over in the New Testament. In fact, even Jesus in his dealings with his disciples, he was desiring that they would grow. John 15, he talked about bearing fruit and bearing more fruit. He talked about sending the Holy Spirit who would continue to comfort them and lead them and guide them into the truth. We see this theme all throughout the New Testament of spiritual growth and maturity. But where does that come from? It often comes through the catalyst of trials and tribulations in our life that bring us to a place of spiritual growth and maturity. So why can we find joy in trials? Because of what God is doing in us through those trials. And what God is bringing us to, we think about that refiner's fire that's purifying us and putting us into a, a better place of service, meat for the, patent, for the master's use. As he's doing that work in us, he's bringing us closer to himself. He's helping us understand more how he thinks and does things. Let me just show you one verse that I think of specifically in this regard. It's in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 7, Paul says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. Following Christ meant he lost some things. So why was he willing to do that? He says, I've suffered the loss of all things, do count them, but dung, that I may win Christ. Why was it worth it to lose all the other stuff? So that he might win Christ. So that he might be in a closer relationship with his Lord. He continues on, he says, and being found in him, not having mine own righteousness. It's as if the closer Paul got to God, the more he realized it wasn't him, it was all God doing the work in him. Isn't it true that the older you get, you realize the less you know? I mean, you know more, but there's so much more out there that you don't know, and you realize, boy, I, I thought I knew it all, and then I realized I didn't know anything. The more you know, it feels like the less you know. And the same can be true, I think, could be said for us spiritually as well. Wouldn't you agree that the closer you get to God, it's like the further you realize you have to go? And you realize that it wasn't on you. It was all because of His grace, because He is faithful to do His work in and through us. Back in Philippians 3, he says in verse 9, "...being found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ." The righteousness which is of God by faith. So when I believe in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God, here's the big theological word, is imputed upon me. It's given to me. He places it on my account. So when people look at me, they don't, or when God looks at me, he doesn't see sinner. He sees somebody who's been sanctified, who's been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why... We can have joy 
in trials because God is doing his sanctifying work in us. Yes, he saved us, but then he continues to do his work to change us and to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. His desire was that he would be drawn into an even closer relationship with God. A song I refer to often, but I think its truth resonates clearly with us. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When James is teaching us here in chapter 1 about how we endure trials, he's teaching us that we can and should endure them with an attitude of joy. And the reason we can endure them with joy is because that trial that God allows in your life is building patience, endurance in you. And as endurance, as patience has her perfect work, her perfecting work, she's changing you into the image of Jesus Christ. Be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now, this can sound arduous. It can sound even discouraging. Why would we have to go through such a painful process to be what God wants us to be? But every athlete understands this. Every academic understands this. Every person who's ever pursued any standard of growth or greatness in their life understands that it takes work and effort for all of those things, those bad habits, those wrong ways of thinking, those um, uncoordinatedness of the athlete to be worked out of their system so that they can be prepared for a greater work. I sure am thankful that the medical doctor was willing to go through some testing and some trial and some preparation before he or she cut somebody open up to operate on them, aren't you? I sure am thankful that the musicians who bless our church with their talent have put in the time to and the testing and the practice to work to prepare themselves to be a blessing to our ministry. I sure am thankful for those who come and, and do electrical work and pour concrete and paint walls and, and do things to keep up the physical property around or have been willing to put themselves through the training and to gain the experience necessary to do the work property. I could go on and on. And why should we begrudge God His work of transformation in our lives and think that somehow that's unfair or God is just being mean? No, God loves His children and He's doing a transformative work in them. Well, this might make logical sense. I hope I've 
made at least some logical sense here. But having joy? <laughs> I mean, I see where he's going. I see what he's doing. But really, having joy, how do we do that? Well, our attitude in testing should be joy. The advantage of testing is that it develops endurance. But I want you to see, thirdly, in your notes there, the assistance for this testing comes from God. God gives us assistance in this process. He didn't just stick us out there and put us in something hard to make us into better people and then step back and say, all right, we'll see how you do. Are you going to sink or swim? Let's push the birdie out of the nest and see if the birdie flies. No, what does he say in the very next verse? He says, if any of you lack wisdom. So if you aren't sure how to do this, if you're struggling with knowing the next step or the next choice, the next decision that should be made, if any of you lack wisdom, what do you have to do? Ask of God. That's simple enough, isn't it? I don't know what to do. Lord, show me the way. If you lack wisdom, and hey, we all do, right? We all lack it. We all could use more of it. If you lack wisdom, ask of God. And he says, and he giveth to all men. So he gives to everybody who asks for it, and he gives it liberally. He just pours it out and dumps it out and, and shovels it out towards us and says, here, have some more wisdom. Sort of like going over to grandma's house and you're a kid and you're eating and she makes all this food and it's great. And she comes by and says, you look like you're still hungry. Do you want some more? All you got to do is ask. Oh, yeah, Grandma, I'll take some more. Okay, here you go. And she's piling on your plate. Man, it's great. I remember when uh, our family took a trip one time, and we, we were in this place where we had this all-you-can-eat breakfast meal provided for us. And I ordered this plate, and it had pancakes and eggs and bacon on it. And I love breakfast, pancakes and bacon and eggs. If you put blueberries in the pancakes, that really makes it good. That's my favorite. John knows that because I told him that last week. And uh, I love those kind of breakfasts. But I was a teenager then, and so I said, I want some more bacon. It was an all-you-can-eat place, and so I ordered some more bacon. And they didn't just bring me one or two strips. No, they brought me a plate, and it was piled up with bacon. I had bacon. I had so much bacon, I couldn't even eat all the bacon. I know, I'm probably offending somebody's sensibilities. Just by, I'm offending my own stomach right now just thinking about it. But boy, at that time, that was a great day when that plate full of bacon came out. You know, it was really fun to be eating a meal where somebody didn't hold back on the serving side. They just gave liberally. Everybody loves to go to Grandma's house when she's scooping the ice cream liberally right or she's cutting the cake liberally and giving you a big piece you know when God gives wisdom he gives it in heaping piles more really than we can even partake of and all we have to do is ask him for it I wonder if you spent as much time asking God for wisdom in your situation as you are currently spending worrying about your situation if you might find that your situation would be much different than it is currently. And I'm preaching to myself there as much as to anybody else. If we spend as much time asking God for wisdom in our situation as we did worrying about our situation, we just might find that God had the answer for us all along. 
How do we get through trials with joy? I don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn. I'm not sure what I should do. Ask God for wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, that's all of us, then let him ask of God. That giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. That word just means he doesn't hold back. He just keeps on giving it. And it shall be given him. But he's telling us here about this asking for assistance, right? The assistance for testing comes from God. So we must, though, he says, ask in faith. Ask in faith. What is asking in faith? It's asking, believing that what you're asking for will actually be provided, right? That's very simply what asking in faith is. Let me tell you, when I asked for bacon, I fully expected to get some bacon. When I go to the restaurant and order blueberry pancakes, I expect there to be blueberries in my pancakes. And you know what? I'm not very happy if they only put one or two blueberries in it. No, I want lots of blueberries in my pancakes. When we ask God for wisdom, we have to ask Him in faith, believing that He will give us wisdom. Sometimes when we get asking God for things, we ask Him, but we don't really believe that He's going to provide. So then we just worry about it. All together at the same time, we sort of feel justified in our worry because, well, I already prayed about it. You don't get to pray and then go worry about it. No, that's not asking in faith. That's like, well, let me sort of pet my uh, magic rabbit's foot over here of prayer and then let me go do what I was going to do all along. That's not faith. No, asking in faith, he says, he's very clear about it, nothing wavering. And then he gives us this illustration of being like a, a, a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. When you ask in faith, that means you're going all in on God. You're saying, Lord, I am fully depending on you. <laughs> Brother Lewis, I think you say fully rely on God, right? I'm fully relying on God to bring this to pass. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Because if you waver, you're like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed means every little thing that comes along is going to throw you for a loop and you're not going to know where to go and which way is up. That's not wisdom, is it? No, wisdom is discernment. It's the ability to uh, take a situation, figure out what needs to be done and make the right choice. For let not that man, which man? The man who wavers. Let not the wavering man think that he will receive anything of the Lord. And then he sums it up very simply in verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Faith and worry don't coexist. Our way and God's way doesn't, they don't coexist. We can choose to follow God and walk by faith. But here's what often happens, right? We end up like that wavering, double-minded man. I'm going to trust God. No, I can't. I'm going to try it. No, I can't. And we're back and forth and back and forth. That's where we have to choose to step back from our situation, come to the Lord and say, God, forgive me for being a child that just worries about everything and doesn't trust in you. Help me to have faith that what you say will come to pass, will come to pass. Help me to trust your promises and help me to continue in them. Because as we begin to walk in the promises of the Lord, 
and some loud noise or some distracting element or some difficulty right in front of us tries to stop us, what happens? We tense up, we pull back, we might even check over there and say, it might have been easier if I went that way. And faith says, no, I'm going to keep looking to the Lord. But you know, God's faithful, isn't he? Because how many, I mean, all of us probably in one way or another have found ourselves in that double-minded man's shoes at one point or another. We found ourselves back and forth and back and forth. And there are so many times that people will choose just to get off the roller coaster altogether rather than continue to go up and down. And that's why you see so many people who at one time have exercised faith, have walked with the Lord, and then they just pull back because they're tired of riding the roller coaster of life. But my friends, that roller coaster of life is a roller coaster that we are choosing ourselves to live on. Because God has given us the answers here in his word so that we don't have to live on that proverbial roller coaster up and down. No, we can walk by faith and not by sight if we keep our eyes, our spiritual eyes, on the Lord. Here's what happens when you're walking with the Lord. One moment you'll feel great and you feel like everything makes sense. It's right in line with what you understand and you're walking in truth. And then the next moment you will feel like the ground just comes out from under your feet and you're just standing on air. And that's when once again you have to say, well, I feel like I'm standing on nothing, but God led me here so I must be where God wants me to be. So Lord, even though I can't see, I'm going to keep stepping forward by faith. Think of the, the children of Israel when they came to the Red Sea. And God said, I want you to go across the Red Sea. Well, the, in the Red Sea, Moses held up his staff and, and they were able to walk through on dry ground. But later on, the children of Israel crossed another body of water called the Jordan River. Do you remember how they crossed this one? This time, they didn't have Moses holding up his staff. Do you remember what they did? Well, the priests, they got the Ark of the Covenant, and they were carrying it on the big staff. And the Bible says that they walked towards the Jordan River, and when their toes touched the water, when they got in the water, that's when the water split. Can you imagine? I mean, you talk about leadership. They're leading towards a, the Jordan River, and my understanding, it was at flood stage, right? So it's way outside of its banks. And they're just marching down towards this flooded river with millions of people behind them, all wanting to go through to get to the promised land. And God doesn't split the water until their feet touch it. Man, there's like no going back at that point, right? I mean, you talk about burning up all your leadership capital all in one giant moment because if God doesn't open that water, you're done. People are like, what are we doing here anyway? I'm so thankful for just simple, ordinary, regular people who are willing to say, I'm going to look to God and walk by faith. Ask in faith for help from God. Living as a double-minded person leaves you unstable in every situation. Second thing about this assistance for testing, we need to understand God's priorities in the test. Understand God's priorities. Look with me, verses 9 through 11. 
verses 9 through 11. It says, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. What are God's priorities? Well, one way we could say this is that God is more interested in developing spiritual strength than physical strength. He talks about being burned up like the grass. Another way to say it from these verses, God is more interested in giving you spiritual riches that will last than in giving you earthly riches that will pass away. So he gives the example of a brother of low degree, so somebody who doesn't have a whole lot in this life, being exalted. And then he talks about a rich person being made low. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd like to identify with the guy in verse 9, not the guy in verse 10. It sounds a lot better to be poor and be exalted than to be rich and be brought low. But what he's doing here is he's painting us a bigger picture because he says, as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. In other words, both the poor man who gets rich and the rich man who gets poor, both of them ultimately will pass away. The riches of this world, while they are a blessing and can be helpful for things that we're doing, ultimately will not bring spiritual satisfaction. And then he carries on with the illustration in verse 11, The sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass. The flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. So the rich man who becomes poor and the poor man who becomes rich, at the end of the day, they both end up in the same place. They both fade away. They both will ultimately lose those earthly riches. So God's priority in testing is not primarily to make you poor or to make you rich. God's priority in testing, while He may use finances as a means of testing our affections or a means of testing our plans and priorities, God's work in testing us is to grow us spiritually and to give us spiritual riches that will last. The riches of this world will pass away. The strength of this body will pass away. But the riches and strength that we can gain eternally, those will last forever. So understanding God's priorities does help us to navigate the trials and tribulations that we face in life. Because we face something and say, that makes no sense at all. And we may not fully comprehend what God is doing. But if we can step back and say, well, is God trying to, or is God working to bring spiritual strength into my life through this? What can I learn from this situation that God wants to teach me? What needs to change in my life that God's trying to reveal through this challenging time? It is the epitome of arrogance for us to walk into any situation, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, and say, well, I clearly don't need to change anything anymore. I have it all together. No. 
No. All of us need to change because I'm not just trying to be just like you or even better than you. No. We're to be being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And we all have a long way to go. So understand God's priorities. And then one final point here, remember the future rewards. Remember the future rewards. Blessed, he says in verse 12, is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. The temptations of this life, the trials of this life, while difficult, are preparing us for the next. They are putting us in a place where as we draw closer to the Lord and we live for Him, God's putting us in a place where we can be better prepared for eternity. You say, what do you mean better prepared for eternity? It's like getting getting saved a little bit more. No, no. But think about this. Not only is our salvation important for our eternal destination, but what we do after our salvation is important for our eternal destination as well. It's not a difference at that point between heaven or hell, but it is a difference between heaven with God's blessings and and crowns that he gives to those who've been faithful versus heaven. But yeah, Lord, I didn't use my talents well that you gave me. I just buried them in the ground and I'm just glad that I made it here. I think in the scriptures, it's teaching us that there are those who, yes, are saved and have their eternal security set in heaven, but there are those who are missing out on the blessings of God in eternity because they weren't faithful to serve God with the blessings that he gave them and even within the trials and tribulations that they faced after being saved. There's spiritual growth that God wants to bring in all of us. He promises a crown of life for those that endure, for those who persevere even in trial. Enduring trials with joy. I don't think this is a type of thing where we can just make a decision. I'm going to decide tonight to endure my trial with joy. And I will never, ever struggle and not be joyful ever again in my life. And if you look at the questions that I put on the sheet there, I am not alluding to that, any of those questions. What has God taught you through testing? How has that experience better prepared you for other tests? How can you face testing with joy? Now, what I believe for the Christian is that in this, in this letter that James is writing here, He's encouraging them to continue on in the truth that they already knew to be true. He's encouraging them to continue day by day in looking to the Lord to not just ask, for God, ask God for wisdom once, but to continue to ask Him for wisdom again and again and again. I enjoyed that big plate of bacon when I was 14 years old. But you know what? I still like to eat more bacon now. I still enjoy those things. I don't eat quite the platefuls that I did when I was 14. I'd probably feel pretty sick if I did that. I don't ever want us to get to a point spiritually. I don't ever want to get to a place myself spiritually. I get to the point where I say, well, I've got all the wisdom I need. I've got this figured out. I've arrived. 
and we sort of hit that spiritual plateau. It's pretty high, and we can see out, and we feel pretty good there. But after a while, you realize there's nowhere to go from here. I've kind of hit the top. That's not the way it is in a real walk with the Lord. Rather, it's saying, you know what, Lord, I'm sure thankful for the wisdom that you gave me for that situation that I was facing. Thank you for helping me have joy in working through that. But Lord, I need some more wisdom today. Lord, I need some more wisdom for each and every day to continue to live for him. Every step you go in life, whether you're young or old, single or married, whether you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter who you are, everybody's at slightly different stages and all kinds of things going on in their life. And there's not a single person in this room that understands exactly what someone else in this room is going through to a T. There's only one person who can give you the wisdom you need, and that's the Lord. That's the Lord. The body of Christ is there to encourage you, there to pray with you, there to seek God's wisdom from God's word with you. But all of us have to walk with the Lord. We got to do it today on Sunday and on Monday, Tuesday, every day of the week. That's real world theology. That's taking the truth of this book and living it out every day of our lives. Father, we thank you for your truth, your word. We thank you for teaching it to us. Father, I can do my very best to explain and to challenge with all the best of my ability, but it's not of much value. In fact, it's of no value unless the Holy Spirit does His work in hearts. So Lord, tonight, even in the next few minutes, as we discuss some of these things together,